0: Please open your Bibles again to Galatians 5. We're going to continue what I started last week, and we'll finish it next week, Lord willing. Um, This section uh, of Galatians 5 about walking in the Spirit. And I'd like to back up and begin reading at least in verse 16. Uh, and we'll read through verse 21, and our focus today will, will be on verses 19 through 21. And and you'll notice a couple of differences if you've got an ESV or a New American Standard, and, and we'll talk about those. In this list of works of the flesh we'll focus on today, there are a couple of extra ones uh, in my version, and uh, we'll talk about that as we move on. Beginning in verse 16, we read, I say then walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law. And we saw last week that Paul is describing a battle that every believer is in between what he calls the flesh and the spirit. And the flesh is, as we talked about last week, that that sinful part that remains within us that's still needing renewal, that's battling against the work of the Spirit in our hearts. And uh, then he's going to talk about what some of the works of the flesh are. In verse 19 he says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, Dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Let's take a moment to pray and ask for the Lord's guidance and blessing. Holy Father, we come to you this morning... uh, First of all, cognizant of the fact that there are many missing here today who are usually with us, and we know some of them are ill, and we pray, Lord, that you would heal them and bring them back to us soon. We know that some of them are traveling, and we pray that you would protect them in their travels, and we know that there are some who are dealing with the effects of terrible storms and tornadoes that moved through the area uh, last night and yesterday, and uh, some of them have... Large trees blocking their streets and so forth, and we just pray, Lord, that you will keep them safe. We're glad that you did keep them safe through the storms, and we pray that you'd continue to protect them and bring them back to us soon as well. And for those of us who were here and are here by your grace today, we we pray, Lord, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and with understanding that as we look into your word, we would understand the things you would have us to understand today that we would become more like Christ as a result. And we trust that you will answer that prayer and we will give you all the glory that you deserve as a result. We pray all these things for your glory and for our good and in the name of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. As uh, we approach this passage, I I think... uh, I think John Piper does a good job of laying out the basic message that Paul is getting at here, and I think it's, it's worth sharing with you because I think he, he, he does a good job of putting our minds in the right place here. Uh, he writes this, keep in mind that flesh does not mean body. We've already noticed that uh, last week as though our bodies were the root cause of our sins. There are some sins listed here that don't come from our bodies. For example, strife, enmity, or or hatred, jealousy, anger, envy, etc. Flesh is the old ego that is self-reliant and does not delight to yield to any authority or depend on any mercy. It craves the sensation of self-generated power and loves the praise of men. We have seen earlier that it In its conservative form, it produces legalism, keeping rules by its own power for its own glory. But here Paul opens the lens, so we see that the flesh also, in its more liberal form, produces grossly immoral attitudes and acts, sexual immorality, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, and hateful, harmful tendencies, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, etc., the flesh is the proud and unsubmissive root of depravity in every human heart which exalts itself subtly through proud, self-reliant morality or flaunts itself blatantly through self-assertive, authoritative, despising immorality. So, so he's saying just because people look more and want to live a more life doesn't mean that they don't have the flesh operating in them because what's motivating that is often not genuine love for God or anything, it's to get the praise of men. And they don't do it very consistently anyway, and they tend to be hypocrites who hide the real them, and they put on a show around other people. But that in itself, their very attempts at morality are works of the flesh. And focused by pride. And then there are other people that rather than being legalists like that, they're libertines who who think they can do whatever they want, it doesn't really matter, and they don't bother to try to hide it. Uh, we probably used to have more of the former in our country than now, and we certainly have more of the latter now than we than we used to have, I would argue. But I think that summary helps us to get back on track in our study of the passage. Uh, remember last week we, we saw that Paul's description of the battle between the Holy Spirit and the flesh within each one of us, even, even believers. In fact, especially believers, because unbelievers are... Trying to battle these things, really. Uh, And when they do make some efforts, it's not with the help of the Holy Spirit. In the text before us this morning, Paul is going to explain more clearly what he means by offering a representative list of the works of the flesh. This isn't intended to be exhaustive, this list, of course. And we'll see more on that later. And then he'll describe the fruit of the Spirit, and we'll have to wait to look at that next week. Today our focus is going to be on this list of works of the flesh and we're going to look at each and every one of them uh, and we're going to have to do it briefly, but hopefully uh, just long enough to get a good idea of what each one of them really is. That's my hope. So we're going to be moving at a pretty fast clip through these, but first I will look at this introductory statement that he makes in the beginning of verse 19 when he says, Now the works of the flesh are evident which are, and then he goes on to list them, Uh, with this introductory statement, uh, Paul is reminding us that although the battle between the flesh and the spirit occurs in the inner man, the works of the flesh are nevertheless outwardly obvious. They're evident. That should tell us right away that, though we might try to hide them, we really can't. (laughs) They're clearly seen. As David Gusek correctly points out, uh, quoting here, Paul has just written about the battle between the flesh and the spirit and every believer. Though it is an interior, invisible battle, the results are outwardly evident. It's almost as if Paul apologizes for having to make this list because the works of the flesh are evident. Yet, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he knows it is important to be specific because we must know specifically how we walk in the flesh. We can't see the flesh. Not not the way Paul used the word here, right? But we can see what it does. And this ability to see what the flesh does has ramifications for all of us. For example, it tells us that sooner or later, who we really are will show. This is true regardless of whether one is a legalist on the one hand or a libertine on the other, as I described before. The legalist tries to do works of righteousness in order to be saved, but sooner or later the works of the flesh will expose him as one who cannot save himself. And in fact, trying to do works of righteousness to be saved is itself a work of the flesh, right? The libertine thinks he can live any way he pleases because salvation is by grace and not based on anything we do, but the works of the flesh expose him as one who has never truly been transformed by Christ at all. So even people who profess to be Christians and think they can live the way they want just show that they're liars. And then they come up with new categories of Christians, right? Uh, That would not have existed in the days of Paul, right? I can think of one category that's been pretty prominent lately, gay Christian. Now, if you mean gay in the old sense of happy, there should be lots of happy Christians, but that's not what people mean, right? By that word today, they mean homosexual Christians, as though that's a perfectly acceptable category. And of course, biblically, it's not. Those people are committed to works of the flesh and trying to dress it up as righteousness. But it's still a word of the flesh. It still exposes them for who they truly are. They may put the word Christian on there, but their lives are not Christian at all. You see... The works of the flesh are evident. <laughs> no wonder our Lord Jesus taught that the works of the flesh are a key means of discerning false teachers from true ones. Consider, for example, his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, where he warned his disciples about false teachers. And this is from Matthew 7. I'll be reading from Matthew 7, beginning in verse 15. <clears throat> this is the words of our Lord Jesus. He says beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. What their lives and their teaching produce. What you can see. As Pastor George likes to say, in this passage our Lord Jesus calls all of us to be fruit inspectors, right? Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. And by their fruits here, he means what they do, what they say. What Paul calls the works of the flesh. Jesus calls here bad fruit. You see, no matter how godly a false teacher may appear to be, sooner or later the works of the flesh to which his life and teaching lead will reveal the truth. But what are some of these works of the flesh? Well, Paul gives us a representative list here, as I've said before. He's not trying to be exhaustive. And we we know that because he indicates as much as we'll see. And so we're going to now begin to look through this list. Uh, in the latter part of verse 19 and the beginning part of verse 21 and the first thing that we're going to look at here uh, is adultery but I want to note before we do that that I have a list here of 17 different works of the flesh but some of the Greek manuscripts that we have have only 15 and they leave out adultery and murder. Um, Along with the New King James Version, which I'm using, we're going to follow the majority of manuscripts, which include these two extra sins. Instead of 15, they have 17. And since this is a representative list, um, actually, we could add to it. Paul would intend that we look through the Bible, and any other sins we see that are wicked, we could add to this list, right? Um, Not that we could change the Bible here, but we could come up with a longer list, and Paul's inviting us to before he's done to think about other things that would fit the same category. So even if adultery and murders aren't in the original manuscripts, and I think it's best to leave them there, I think it's more likely that people accidentally left them out than added them. But uh, be that as it may, even if they weren't there, they would still be works of the flesh that we would uh, want to put in any list we would make of works of the flesh. And as we'll see, Paul invites us to to do so, to think about other things. Before we're finished, we'll see that. So the first one, not included in some manuscripts, but in most of them, is this adultery, this word adultery. Now this sin is one that was common in the ancient world, and sadly it's all too common today. Uh, However, there are many Christians who think they could not or would not ever commit adultery. Maybe maybe that's why it's left out in some manuscripts. Oh, come on, Christians wouldn't do that. Uh, I think it's more likely somebody just accidentally went past it copying something. There are a lot of Christians that can't imagine how a man or a woman who truly loves their spouse would ever do such a thing. And I'd just like to say two things about that. First, the landscape out there is littered with Christians who thought it couldn't happen to them. And this is one reason that it did. A man who tells me, oh, I could never do that, is a man I'm worried might. Because if we think we couldn't do it, we're never on our guard like we should be. We must always be on our guard. Paul, I think, uh, would say uh, that we're capable uh, of still committing most any work of the flesh if we don't trust in the Spirit. The second thing I'd like to say is that the truth is that adultery is, first of all, a matter of the heart, not simply of outward actions. Remember again what our Lord Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, and this is from Matthew 5, verses 27 and 28. But you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So the best way to actually avoid committing adultery outwardly is to learn through the Spirit's enabling power to conquer it in our hearts. That's where we have to start, according to our Lord Jesus. Now, he's not equating adultery of the heart with actually committing adultery, as as though it's just as wicked. I mean, he doesn't allow divorce in the case of adultery of the heart, right? But outward adultery. But it's still adultery, even if it's in the heart. And one who physically commits adultery simply reveals that it was already in his heart anyway. So we're to start there. So when we, when we look at this list of the works of the flesh, we can't say, because I haven't actually physically committed adultery, I'm fine. No, Jesus would have us look deeper. He would have us look at our heart and say, what's going on in there? Do I have an adulterous heart? The second thing on the list is another kind of sexual sin. It's in the New King James, it's called fornication. Uh, Some modern translations might just have sexual immorality for this one. Uh, The Greek word here is porneia, sound like something you might have heard of, pornography. It comes from this word, porneia. It's a very broad term. Um, It encompasses virtually all forms of sexual sin as like an overarching list. As I said, it's frequently translated simply as sexual immorality in the New Testament in modern versions. Uh, But it would include such sins as sex outside of marriage, um, which is sexual promiscuity like that is very common in our culture, and it was certainly very common in the first century in which Paul was writing. And he clearly thinks that Christians need a warning against it. And we still need that warning today. It could also maybe include things like addiction to pornography. It's a pretty broad term. It would certainly include something like homosexuality. It's a broad enough term. It includes all kinds of sexual immorality. You might say it's sort of a New Testament umbrella term for sexual immorality. The third thing he talks about is uncleanness in the New King James Version. This word may also be translated as impurity. Um, it is a word that was often used to describe the ceremonial uncleanness that would bar one from coming before the Lord in worship. Uh, I think listed as it is here with sexual sins, it most likely refers to sexual impurity that becomes an impediment to one's relationship with God. Uh, maybe a, a sort of a, another blanket term. The next term is lewdness, as it translated in the New King James Version. As the analytical lexicon of the Greek New Testament indicates, this word speaks of, quote, living without any moral restraint, licentiousness, sensuality, lustful indulgence, especially as indecent and outrageous sexual behavior, debauchery, indecency, flagrant immorality. It's a a pretty broad term that it could include more than just sexual sin. That's obviously quite a It's a term that just uh, denotes allowing oneself to think about and do any sort of sinful degenerate kind of thing. And this would include, you know, speech. Uh, We've often heard of the lewd remark, right, that someone can make. Or there's people that like dirty jokes. Stuff like that would even be included. It's a broad enough term to include all of that sort of thing. So he's used some specific terms and then he seems to have gotten a little bit broader here. He's trying to use terms that by the time he's done will have encompassed just about every kind of action you can imagine by the time you're done with the list. Although he knows he still hasn't been exhausted. The next term is idolatry. Um, Although this word commonly refers to pagan idolatry, in the first century that would be accompanied by the Worship of statues and and so forth. We must not forget, though, that idolatry can occur whenever we put someone or something before God. Anytime we allow anything in our lives to take the place of God, that thing is an idol. And it could be almost anything or anyone. There are some married people for for whom their spouse has become an idol, for example, or some people for whom their children has become an, have become idols to them, that they love them more than they love God. Anything or anyone can be an idol if we're not careful. As John Calvin once wrote, our hearts are idol factories. We just turn them out, you know, uh, aside from the grace of God. But this is why Jesus could See the danger of idolatry in something like money, for example, when he said in Matthew six twenty four, again from the Sermon on the Mount, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, and that's another word for money. You, th- you think uh, in modern America, most people would say, oh, we're not idolatrous. We don't have idols, you know, we don't bow down and worship stone or wooden figures or Sacrifice to him or anything like that. But many people, many people serve money. It's one of the biggest idols in our, in our culture. It's one of the worst idols that we have. Right after Molech, the modern Molech, you know, in the ancient days, they sacrificed their children to Molech. Well, there's a modern Molech the selfishness and arrogance that lead people to sacrifice their children through abortion, for example. That's idolatry, that's what it boils down to. Usually that's worship of self that leads to that. The next thing on the list is sorcery. You think, we don't need to worry about that. People automatically are thinking of things like Harry Potter and so forth. And so we got we got to talk about what Paul meant by this. He's using a Greek word, pharmakeia. Um, it refers to the use of drugs of any kind for magical effect. Um It could refer to lots of different kinds of things in the ancient world, but it usually involved the use of some kind of herbs or what we would call drugs today that people would use to induce certain states and so forth or in other people or in themselves. It was a very common, uh, actually this word pharmakeia is where we get our word pharmacy from, uh, which is obviously dealing with drugs, right? Pharmaceutical companies, they make drugs. Timothy George has a very intriguing discussion of this term in his commentary in this passage, and I think it warrants significant quotation. Here's what he says about it. At the root of this word is pharmakon, literally drug, from which we derive our English word pharmacy. In classical Greek, pharmakeia referred to the use of drugs, whether for medicinal or more sinister purposes, for example, poisoning. In the New Testament, however, it is invariably associated with the occult, both here and in the book of Revelation, where it occurs twice. English translations usually render pharmakeia as witchcraft or sorcery. These words uh, correctly convey the idea of black magic and demonic control, but they miss the more basic meaning of drug use. In New Testament times, pharmakeia, in fact, denoted the use of drugs with occult properties for a variety of purposes, including especially abortion. As J.T. Noonan has written, Paul's usage here cannot be restricted to abortion, but the term he chose is comprehensive enough to include the use of abortifacient drugs. Even in the ancient world, they would give people certain things that would cause women to miscarry, for example. If we if we mix up this plant with this one, we can put it together into a potion, right? And then it'll cause that woman to miscarry that child. They did that kind of stuff back then. Abortion was around then. In fact, in the early church, one of our oldest uh, Christian documents called the Didache has a, a specific prohibition against abor- abortion in it. It was such a problem even then. So I don't think he's wrong to, to include that concept here, and I certainly thought it was worth uh, mentioning. It's a very intriguing uh, thought, and I think it would, in the broader use of the word, probably include something like that. Anything that they would do to try to, to use things that would cause Altered states in people or trick people or things like that or cast spells on people, that sort of thing. The next word is hatred. That's a word that shouldn't go with Christian, right? Remember that Paul earlier spoke of how we should not use our liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. He said that in verse 13. Well, here he's saying that the flesh will produce the opposite of love, namely hate, and the ways that hate can be revealed in our actions become the focus of the terms I think that are immediately following. He's sort of shifting gears a little bit here with this word hate, and now he other words come to his come into his mind under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that flow from hateful things. What are they? How do you? How do? You, how does hate reveal itself? Seems to be what came into his mind, and then he starts to give us examples. I think that's what's going on here. The next word in the New King James is the word contentions. The Greek word here basically means strife or discord. A contentious person is a really argumentative person, for example, that likes to create strife. You ever meet somebody that says, I like to play the devil's advocate. I often say to that person, "Well, I wouldn't want to be his advocate, but I guess if you want to, that's up to you, you know." But, uh, but, but most people—it's just a—it's a figure of speech. I want to take the other side of an issue to bring out a point—is what some people mean by it in a, a sort of a discussion. But very often, the person that does that is just a person that just likes to constantly argue, just doesn't like peace. That's the kind of thing Paul has in mind, that kind of person. Then the next word is jealousies. Jealousy is the feeling of dissatisfaction we have because we want what someone else has. That's what jealousy is. It's, It's a feeling of dissatisfaction in us because we want what someone else has. Timothy George is again very helpful in applying the text when he writes this, a jealous person is someone who wants what other people have. A jealous pastor looks with envious eyes on the more prosperous church field of a neighboring minister. Jealousy often leads to bitterness and sometimes erupts into violence as when Joseph's brothers seized him in anger and sold him into slavery. Remember in the Old Testament, in Genesis, they did that because they were jealous of him. At the root of all... Sentiments of jealousy is the basic posture of ingratitude to God, a failure to accept one's life as a gift from God. To envy what someone else has is to fling one's own gifts before God in unthankful rebellion and spite. I think he's right about that. I think when we're jealous of what other people have. That means we're not satisfied with what we have. We're discontent. And when we're discontent, we're certainly not thanking God for what we have. We sort of resent what we have because it's not what the other person has and we think what they have is better. So I think Timothy George is on the right track here in bringing out that application. The next term in the New King James, as I'm using it here, is outbursts of wrath. Now this, this phrase actually translates a single Greek word, the King James version therefore tra- translates it simply as wrath, um, whereas the ESV is similar to the New King James version and translates it this way: fits of anger. The word is used of anger that boils up and subsides again. As a, it, it means a swelling up of anger, and that's why the New King James has outbursts of anger or wrath or fits of anger in the in the ESV. It can refer to someone with a hot temper, right? He's right. easily angered. Again, Timothy George, I think is on point when he says, here in Galatians, it means a passionate outburst of anger or hostile feeling. Such displays of uncontrollable verbal violence should not be excused as the product of a, of a quote-unquote Irish temper or the natural propensity to fly off the handle. Such fits of rage are a form of conduct unbecoming to a Christian, they drag us away from God and the promptings of His Spirit and further enmesh us in the works of the flesh. You know, I, I, have you ever met anybody who said, well, I just need to vent my anger. Just excusing his outbursts of anger or she. Why, you know, I just need to vent my anger. Well, the Bible never, never tells us that's a good idea. Anger is a, it's, if you have anger in your heart, it's like you have a, a wild beast living in you that if you give it an inch, it's going to take a mile. The more you let it out, the more it takes and takes. And it's the opposite of self-control, by the way, which is the fruit of the spirit that we'll look at next week. A person who has outbursts of anger isn't a person with self-control. And I speak of one who's had my share of outbursts of anger in my life, right? Now, he's not saying all anger is wrong. Being angry at sin is not a bad thing. Paul will tell the Ephesians, be angry and sin not. There isn't such a thing as righteous anger. As the old Puritan commentator once wrote, uh, a guy named John Trapp, he would be angry and not sin, must be angry at nothing but sin. Most of our outbursts of anger aren't usually at sin. They're usually sinful. That's why it's on the list. The eleventh thing here is selfish ambitions. Now the Greek word here uh, is used as uh, denoting an attitude of self-seeking and and hence selfish ambition, self-interest, in the sense of being selfish, um, it, it describes a person who always has his own agenda and uses other people to get what he wants. That's the kind of thing. As a person who has selfish ambition views everything and everyone as a means to his own ends. That's the kind of person who uses other people, a person filled with selfish ambition. Um, A lot of politicians can be like that, for example, Uh, but it's easy to look at them and point the finger and forget that there are at least three more pointing back at us, right? We can all be guilty of this. A person filled with selfish ambition doesn't concern himself with what is best for other people or the group of which he is a part, but only with what will ultimately get him what he wants. The next word is dissensions. I'm on on 12 of 17 in my list now, so I'm moving along pretty good, I think. Um, This word dissensions is similar to one we already looked at, but literally the word means something like standing apart, and then it came to mean disunity or dissension or division within a community. There, There are some people who simply enjoy standing out from others and getting others to go along with them, but in a really unhealthy way. I think our Lord Jesus would tell us as Christians we're supposed to stand out and try to get other people to go along with us. But that's not the that's not what Paul means here. He means it in an unhealthy way. This was probably going to be one of those contentious people that's like this, right? They're they're divisive people. And they're often filled with selfish ambition as well. Here Paul cautions us that such an attitude is characteristic of the flesh and he warns us against it but elsewhere he warns us about contrarians who have who, be, who become be- consumed by this it's became, it's it's begun to characterize them this kind of this kind of dis- divisive spirit he says this in Romans 16:17 using the same word by the way now i urge you brethren note those who cause divisions and offences contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. So there it's pretty clear. It's, this is the kind of division that brings in destruction and tears churches apart needlessly. Usually means varying from the truth in some way. Maybe that's why the next thing that Paul lists is heresies. That's number 13 in my list here, heresies as the analytical lexicon to the Greek New Testament defines it. In a religious sense, this word speaks of uh, belief contrary to established doctrine, just heresy or false teaching. It shouldn't surprise us that Paul lists this work of the flesh along with selfish ambition and dissensions, uh, should it? Again, he's just piling up words to try and give you an overall picture here. He's leaving no stone unturned in the process. And this, it's, a, it's especially pertinent to bring this up in the context of the theological debate that had overtaken the Galatian churches. Remember, there was false teaching. There was heresy coming into the Galatian churches saying that you could be saved by your own works, by your own efforts. And Paul's teaching, no, you can only be saved by grace through faith alone. And so there was a terrible heresy coming into the Galatian churches that Paul's combating with this very epistle. And here he's clearly indicating that false teachers that have been setting themselves up as authorities and trying to gain adherence among them are actually sinning and being controlled by the flesh rather than by the spirit. So in the process of giving this list, he's also exposing the kind of people that are causing problems in the Galatian churches. The 14th thing he lists is envy envy. This term is similar in meaning to the earlier term for jealousy, but I think there's a slight difference. Uh, Here's the way the linguistic key to the Greek New Testament puts it. The Greek word uh, here refers to quote, the desire to appropriate what another possesses. The word jealousy in verse 20 refers to the desire of being as well off as another and the word envy refers refers to the desire to deprive another of what he has. In other words, the jealous person wants what someone else has, but the envious person resents that the other person has it at all. That'd be the idea. That's pretty terrible. Um, To begrudge someone else of some good thing or some blessing simply because you don't have it. It's not just that you're jealous and you'd like to have it, you really resent that they have it. That's another hateful way to be. And it's not Christian. The 15th thing, murders. Again, this is not included in, in some manuscripts, um, as I indicated earlier, um, that, but I think it's best to leave it there. It's in, it's in most of the manuscripts and. It may may seem shocking to some that Paul would list it. Of course, as I said before, even if he hadn't listed it here, it would make any list we would make, and that he would invite us to go on and make, for sure. Um, But it's shocking to some that Paul would list murders among the worst of the flesh, to which a believer might succumb, because they can't imagine that a believer would do this. Well, just a couple of things to consider on that point. First, the example of David in the case of Uriah the Hittite shows that even a true believer can fall so far into sin that he can commit murder. So I say, if it could happen to David, it could happen to me under the right circumstances, or you. And he was a true believer. He ended up repenting. He was judged by God for it as well. He was disciplined, rather, by God for it. So could it happen to a believer? Yeah, I think it could. Secondly, the teaching of Jesus tells us that a person can be guilty of murder in the heart, even if he doesn't actually kill a person. There are many Christians that feel like killing other people, even if they don't do it, for example. And yet they would say, well, I could never do it. Well, if you feel like you could do it, maybe there's a circumstance at some point in which you actually could. So maybe you should get rid of that feeling. And that begins with anger. And it's another reason why outbursts of anger are so bad. Listen to what our Lord Jesus said in Matthew 5. Again, from the Sermon on the Mount, keep going there. Matthew 5, beginning verse 21, our Lord Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said of of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. Notice he said angry without a cause. He's not talking about righteous anger here. He's talking about unrighteous anger when he says this. Whoever says to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. Whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hell fire. Now he means these things in that you have an unrighteous anger in your heart towards someone. You're carrying a grudge and you have an unrighteous wicked anger that leads you to say wicked things to them. Call them wicked names. And Jesus says that's murder in the heart. And a person allows them himself or herself to get to that point, how how far are they really from actually committing murder, do you think? Most people say, well, they're they're a long way off from that. Maybe not. Maybe that's why we have to be on our guard against it. Something to think about. Paul, Paul wants us to think about it, I think. But again... Even if, it's, even, if, even if you have the manuscript you like better that doesn't have this word in it, I think you'd have to put it in your list. Think about what James said in James 4, verses 1 and 2. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. Now, I think he's probably using the word murder there in a more figurative sense about the attitude of heart that people are displaying in order to get what they want. Maybe he's being hyperbolic. But in using the term, maybe he's hinting that we could actually do it if we don't stop this nonsense quick. The next 16 out of my 17 list here is drunkenness. And I don't think we need to go into detail about how even Christians can be overtaken by the sin of drunkenness. Does anybody think that can't happen? Okay, let's move on to the last one. Revelries in the New King James is how it is. Now, the Greek word used here is found three times in the New Testament, and it just so happens that each time it is associated with drinking, as it seems to be here. It it rolls off Paul's tongue or his pen immediately after talking about drunkenness, this word. It refers to the kind of gross sin that so often accompanies drunkenness, and is also translated as carousing, or orgies. I think it's best to leave it at that. When you get a bunch of people who are quote-unquote partying and they're getting into, in our day and age, not just drinking but maybe drugs, some people, and uh, they lose all their inhibitions, it's what groups of those people do. That's what it's talking about. And we'll just leave it at that. Enough said. And so we've come to the end of Paul's list of works of the flesh. But notice he adds the, word, the words, and the like. or, And other things like this. And that tells us that he doesn't intend that this list be considered exhaustive. And other things you can think of like this. Like the kinds of things I've mentioned. Other works of the flesh that you could think of. So that's why I said earlier, even if adultery and murders weren't on the list, wouldn't we add them? Of course we would. And maybe some other things as well. Paul could have added, for example, sins like pride. That's a root sin. That's behind all, all sins practically. He talks about it elsewhere at some length. It's not in this list. But he assumes we'll think of it, right? How about hypocrisy? That's not in the list, but surely it would be part of the like that he has in mind when he says, and the like, and maybe taking the Lord's name in vain or stealing. It's not there. Bribery, that's listed elsewhere in the Bible as a terrible thing. It's not here. Homosexuality is listed elsewhere as a terrible thing, although it could be included, as we saw earlier, under this porneia, this concept of overarching sexual sin term that we looked at. But Paul expects the reader to understand that all such sinful motives and actions are works of the flesh without having to spell it out. And then he goes on to say in the last part of verse 21, of which all these kinds of things I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in past time that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Apparently, Paul is not telling the Galatians anything new here. He has consistently taught them that those who practice the works of the flesh that he's been listing here will not inherit the kingdom of God. But this immediately raises an important issue. For example, is Paul trying to say that any professing Christian who has ever lost his temper will not inherit the kingdom of God? As he mentions, outbursts of wrath, for example. It's on the list. Well, I I don't think that's his point at all. When he speaks of those who practice such things, he's he's doing there what he did with the present tense earlier in the preceding context. Remember when we uh, saw last week, he said, in verse 16, I say, walk in the spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And he's using present tenses to talk about characteristic behavior. What, what we characteristically do. Not what we perfectly do, right? And he's, so when he uses this present tense here and says whoever practices such things, he's talking about ongoing habitual action. If, if this characterizes your life, Keep on the anger thing. If somebody could point to you and say that is an angry person, that person has a hot temper. He flies off the handle all the time. Mm, could be that person's not a Christian. Certainly isn't acting like one, right? But but it would take more than that. It you'd probably want to you probably would see other things on this list in a person like that, wouldn't you? And as you, as you stop looking just at that one sin in that person, you started to widen out your scope a little bit. You'd start to say, boy, this person is characterized by all kinds of sin, sins. And you'd say, that's the kind of person that doesn't inherit the kingdom of God right there. On the other hand, if you see somebody have an outburst of anger and fly off the handle, and you step back and say, wait a minute, that doesn't characterize that person's life at all. That's unusual for that person to do that. In fact, it's unusual for him to do most well, any bad thing I can think of. I can't imagine that person ever doing this or that. Or, Boy, that really strikes me as odd. Then you're probably looking at a believer who's stumbled, right? Paul is saying here that those whose lives are characterized by such works of the flesh will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's what he means he wouldn't have said that David's not going to be in heaven because he put out a hit on Uriah and stole his wife. And there, there's not just murder. There's jealousy, envy, there's pride. There's all kinds of stuff going on. I think John Calvin was on the right track when he wrestled with this text and he wrote this. this, I'll end with this. For who is there who does not labor under one of these sins? I reply, he says, Paul does not threaten that there shall be excluded from the kingdom of God all who have sinned, but all who remain impenitent. They're unrepentant. These things characterize their lives because they don't care to change them, in other words. He goes on to say, the saints themselves are heavily burdened, but they return to the way because they do not surrender They are not included in this catalog. All the threatenings of God's judgments call us to repentance, for which pardon is always ready with God. But if we continue obstinate, they will be a testimony against us. I think he's on the right track. He sees that Paul is talking about something that characterizes a person's life, and that means that the person isn't really repentant of these things. It's the person who excuses his outbursts of anger. Well, you know, that's just... I'm just, that's the way I am. But that's not a way a Christian is, is the thing. <laughs> May God bless each one of us with increasing victory in our battle against all the works of the flesh. And if we have heard this list and we thought, boy, I've committed one of those, or maybe you've committed some of these in your past before you came to Christ, and you're very glad that you're not that kind of person anymore but maybe you still feel guilty about it when you think about it. Well, just thank God that he's forgiven you and you don't have to feel that guilt anymore. Maybe you're a believer who stumbled in some of these ways and you fear, maybe I'm like one of those people, maybe I won't inherit the kingdom of God. I ask you this, does it characterize your life Do you accept it as part of your life? Do you try to excuse it? Or do you desire to repent and trust God to help you overcome it? So that's the key. And if you're doing that, you know what that is? That's fruit of the Spirit. (laughs) That's the work of the Spirit in your life, prompting you to repent and turn away from these terrible things. It means you're in the battle that Paul says you should be in. And you're fighting it like he says you should be fighting it with the help of God's grace and the power of the Spirit. So don't despair. As I said last week, keep your eyes on the positive things that God is doing in your life. This list is here, but Paul doesn't end with this list. He goes on to the fruit of the Spirit. He doesn't want us to get stuck looking for faults in ourselves without looking for what the Spirit is doing in our lives is what I'm saying. Or we will fall into despair. And he doesn't want us to do that. He wants us to have victory. Holy Father, I do thank you so much for your grace. I hope I've been helpful to my brothers and sisters in the Lord this morning and just getting at what this text is saying, what it's all about, and how it should impact our lives. Uh, We live in in a particularly wicked culture in many respects, and it's a terrible thing. Um... We look around us with sorrow at at what we see. But Paul reminds us to look first to ourselves and to remember that there go I but by the grace of God. It's only by God's grace and the work of the Spirit in our lives that we aren't as bad as what we see around us. It's not because we're better than anyone else, because we're not. It's because you've loved us, and you've saved us, and you've given us your grace. And we give you the glory for anything good in us, Lord. And we thank you for it. We ask that you will help us to trust you to do works of righteousness and so that people will see our righteousness and glorify our Father in heaven, as our Lord Jesus said. Forgive us our sins, we pray. Cause us and help us to trust you more and more every day. And if there's someone here this morning who hasn't yet come to trust you as Lord and Savior, I pray that you will do for him or her what you've done for the rest of us who know you here. Grant them faith and repentance. Help them to see that they can only be saved through faith in Christ and what he has done through dying on the cross for their sins, taking the punishment they deserved, rising from the dead and conquering death on their behalf that he ever lives to forgive them, to love them, to intercede for them, to help them, to take them safely home to heaven. We'll give you the glory for what you do in answer to these prayers in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I thank you once again for your kind attention.